Good afternoon and welcome to Africa.com's Crisis Management for African Business Leaders. My name is Soko Stipia from Africa.com. We are thrilled to have had more than 15,000 registrants for this webinar series. At this point, it's my pleasure to introduce Africa.com Chairman and CEO, Teresa Clark. Well, it's a privilege to be here today. And I'd like to thank all of the participants who have joined us from all around the world, and especially our esteemed panelists who are joining us today. We could not ask for a better panel representing East, South, and Western Africa. We could not ask for a better panel ranging in age from those who are young to those who are wise. We couldn't ask for a better panel that would reflect public sector and private sector. So I am particularly grateful to all of you who have accepted our invitation. Today, we would like to mention that we are partners with She Leads Africa, run by Yasmin Bello Osagi. We appreciate the long-term relationship that we have had with your organization and your help in publicizing this event. We'd also like to point out that Harvard Business School has made all of its resources related to the coronavirus pandemic available for free. And all of that information is available at hbs.edu slash coronavirus. There are tremendous resources for business leaders in Africa on that site. There are case studies, access to articles from the Harvard Business Review, from Harvard, working, Harvard Business School's Working Knowledge, a number of podcasts and videos. And we do invite you as you pursue this topic of crisis management for leaders in Africa, we encourage you to use the very, um, the varied resources that are available on the HBS website. We've had a tremendous number of emails and responses to our surveys. Um, as you all know, who've been with us before, we send a survey immediately following, and we have literally had 15,000 um, statements from participants as to what their greatest concerns are with respect to COVID-19. We have had now close to 2,000 survey responses and hundreds if not thousands of emails. And we read every one that we receive with great interest in order to understand what is important to you. In just a moment, I'm going to read to you some of the responses that we got um, when people signed up with respect to the question of gender. This is something that we've heard from many of our participants is of great concern and the reason that we have convened today's session in order to take a deep dive into this topic. We had specifically 114 emails and comments about concerns for women in the pandemic. And these are some of the things that we have heard. Insofar as women issues are concerned, a lot of important gender-based work has been shelved and all focus is now towards building capacity to fight the coronavirus. We're back to issues like access to healthcare for women and a surge in domestic violence during the lockdown. People are being laid off and women are not spared, especially noting that they occupy lower positions in organizations. Another comment that we received said the following. How quickly is industry adjusting to new consumer trends? When do we expect business to turn to the new norm once the market is open? How is the African economy going to perform after COVID-19? What are the opportunities that countries can tap into? And that same respondent said, what strategies are governments and businesses putting in place to make sure that women are part and parcel of the recovery measures? Another person asked us the particular question of finance for women-led businesses, although to be fair, that is a constant worry in a world where the vast majority of funding goes to male-run and dominate businesses. It's likely to be more of the same in terms of stimulus funding. Another letter said to us, economic ramifications are my concern. 
and push women even further back in terms of financial inclusion. Another person wrote to us, the effects of COVID-19 on the most vulnerable communities, including women, girls, and, mar and marginalized communities, and those in the informal sector. I'm very ambitious for this session today. My ambition is a bold one, and I'm going to share it with you. When I think about one of the milestone events that has taken place for women in history, we all think back to the iconic 1995 UN Women's Conference in Beijing. That was a very important milestone in the history of gender equalization. We know that there were thousands of people who came together and I asked myself, what is it that made that particular meeting so important and such an important moment in the history? And I think that there are two things that happened at that meeting. Number one, there were 17,000 participants and another 30,000 activists from over 100 countries around the world who convened to focus on women's issues. It took place at a very dark time in the history of women's and human rights. It was taking place in China at a time that Tiananmen Square still had a cloud hanging over Chinese human rights. So it was a dark moment when people were looking for solutions and wanting change. And specifically at that meeting, there was a call to action that was adopted by over 100 countries around the world of specific actions. People left Beijing energized. They left feeling as if they had to make change. And those are the key factors. Preaching to the people in the room isn't going to change anything because we know how progressive everyone on this panel is and the men and women who've taken time from their very busy days to be with us today. So I'm going to set a very high ambition for this call today. We have many of the same elements that existed in Beijing in 1995. We have thousands of people over a hundred countries around the world with us today on this call. We have the head of UN Women, the very entity that convened that meeting in Beijing with us on this call today. And we have leaders from throughout the continent who have given great thought to action items that we will undertake. We want to inspire. And I want people to think back to the action items that were recommended on this meeting and let's see if today can be a galvanizing moment when we can look at the issues that women have on the continent and throughout the world and say that today we did something by leaving people at the end of this webinar with a sense of urgency to go out and make whatever change they can make at the societal level, the institutional level, and the individual level. Because that's what it's going to take in order for us to get where we need to go. So, we're going to go on a journey today, and let me tell you what we will be doing. This journey is gonna take us throughout the continent of Africa, and it's going to take us through a number of different topics. We're going to start with the fact that we know that there's been much written about the leadership role that women throughout the world have taken during COVID-19. Much has been written about the women in the Western world. We know the role that Angela Merkel has played. We know the role that the Prime Minister of New Zealand has played. We've read about the role that the Mayor of San Francisco has, been, um, has taken. Well, within the last week, the World Health Organization singled out Namibia as a place where women's leadership has had a tremendous impact on their management of COVID-19. 
Namibia has not had a single new case of COVID-19 in what is now three to four weeks, which we all know is a lifetime in this pandemic. There is a woman who is behind that. The Prime Minister of Namibia was noted by WHO as the person driving the task force that made the recommendations for Namibia in order for them to achieve this tremendous accomplishment. So at the last minute, we have invited the Prime Minister of Namibia to join us. Before we hear from her, I'd like to just roll a clip that puts this into context. We're going to see a short video that was produced by CNN, and I think that this will help us to realize how important it is for us to celebrate our women in Africa in light of what has been acknowledged for women throughout the world. We're going to go now to that clip. We spoke earlier of the quick and effective response taken by Greece. Other success stories are instructive too. Here's a look at them and their leaders. In the Pacific region, Taiwan and Hong Kong acted early and fast and are now reopening. And New Zealand, which also locked down quickly, is now the first country to claim it has eliminated the virus. In Europe, Denmark and Norway also quickly locked down and guaranteed workers' salaries, while Germany and Iceland added massive testing. And this is South Korea's new hero, the chief medical officer and architect of the nation's test, trace and isolate strategy that's become the envy of the whole world. None of those leaders said, so what, as their nation's death toll mounted, or sought to play down the virus and call it a hoax, or indeed boasted about shaking hands with COVID-19 victims on a hospital visit. Instead, each of these leaders communicated tough, stay at home, stay alive messages, combined with empathy, calm, competence and hard work, and always, always favoring science over politics. So we wanna bring it home and celebrate one of our African sisters, Her Excellency, the Prime Minister of Namibia. Her Excellency Sarah Kumbunguela Amadila is someone who I've just come to know in the last week. We share something in common and that she is a graduate of Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, which is where my grandfather went to school and graduated in 1935. That helped her to return the call for me. I made sure she knew that when I reached out to see if she would join us today. She has had tremendous success rising through the ranks of government in Namibia. She was awarded with an honorary doctorate in public finance by the University of Namibia in 2015. She received an honorary doctorate from her alma mater, Lincoln University. She's held various positions with a number of AU and World Bank organizations and comes to her position very well qualified to achieve the success. It's no surprise that she has achieved in Namibia. So with no further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Her Excellency. I'm honored indeed to have this opportunity to interact with other women and with other stakeholders that would be interested in these discussions that we'll be holding today. I want to start by saying that uh, in fact in Namibia, the head of state uh, is the president who is a male. He is also head of government and is deputized by a vice president. As prime minister, I'm head of government administration uh, and not government itself but uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity accorded to me to serve in this position so that I can make my input as a citizen of Namibia and also as, as a female. Um, I want also to acknowledge that the response that Namibia has adopted to fighting COVID 
is a result of collective efforts amongst many stakeholders within government and outside of government. And we have also made use of the lessons from the experiences of other countries around the world, as well as the guidelines from the WHO. We did so, especially taking cognizance of the fact that uh, COVID-19 is a new disease and we are a small country that does not have all the technology to be able to take on new technological issues. Uh, and as a result of that, we have managed to realize the gains that we have. As you have said, we have not had new cases of COVID in the past three weeks or so. We have also managed to reduce the positive cases from 16 to now only five. And uh, those are being isolated and, and monitored. And we are hopeful that we would be able to have a recovery with all of them and continue to have a no death um, situation in, in Namibia. Uh, the role that I have played in this is to chair a ministerial committee that reports to the head of state who was actively involved in the implementation of uh, COVID response measures. And this committee uh, was composed of key uh, ministries in government. Uh, the committee was also served by subcommittees. We also established an information center that allowed us the opportunity to interact with stakeholders from outside of, of government. I am happy to say that we also received financial and in-kind support, both from within Namibia and also from abroad. And all of this have helped us to deal with the, with the COVID pandemic. Our response has, for the most part, uh, tried to nip the problem in the bud, knowing that we would not have the means to deal with the situation if it escalates into a pandemic within the country itself. So we called for a state of emergency through a declaration by the president, which resulted in us closing the borders, limiting the entry of people into the country, except Namibians who were returning. And these Namibians were uh, put up in quarantines where they were observed to make sure that they are only allowed to mingle with the rest of the population when it has been confirmed that they are not uh, COVID positive. We then rolled out a program, uh, a healthcare program, to make sure that we have the health facilities that will be needed for us to isolate and treat people, and also to ensure that we have the equipment and other supplies that are needed in this regard. We realized that COVID was going to impact us not only in terms of uh, health, but also economically. So being a country that has high levels of inequities, we also come up with a package to assist the most vulnerable providing food, but also providing an income grant, a once-off grant for those that are most vulnerable. And we came up with subsidies to encourage employers to not lay off workers and to assist those workers that will lose their jobs or would have their packages reduced. We also came up with packages to assist businesses that would need capital to keep their activities going. And we have developed a, a post-COVID strategy where we follow a gradual approach to opening up activities in the economy while making sure that we don't lose sight of the risks that continue to prevail uh, of, of COVID infections in the country. So currently we are in a stage two, we call it a stage two um, state of emergency, where we have opened up the country internally to movement within the country, but the borders continue to be locked and also economic activities that are considered to be risky are still not allowed to go on. Schools are closed uh, and informal markets are closed. 
and uh, being it that women are more participating in economic activities and informal sector, they are affected. So these two have been identified as beneficiaries of the support that we have been providing to make sure that they are not women uh, on the receiving end of, uh, of, of COVID. Um, the question I need to ask you is that Namibia has clearly done a fantastic job managing the pandemic, and this has been acknowledged by WHO. But when we're fighting a fight where social distancing is the key to solving the problem, Namibia has a natural advantage because you have a sparse population. When we compare Namibia, for example, and Yundhuk to the slums of Kibera in Kenya, to Alex in Johannesburg, when we think about the waterfront slum in Lagos, Makoko, clearly this is more difficult to do in those environments. So I ask you, how much of the success is attributed to your leadership versus the natural advantage that you have in Namibia? Mm. First and foremost, I would be the first to acknowledge that we cannot claim greater wisdom than other countries who are more affected than ourselves. Uh, rather, as I have indicated in the beginning, we have drawn from the lessons of other countries that have been negatively affected. We have also benefited from the guidelines that are coming from international organizations and the advice and, and technical support that we are getting from other stakeholders. But I think besides the fact that Namibia is sparsely populated, we have um, pockets of communities within our country where there is density. Of, of, of population, especially in the informal settlements in Winduk, where there are hardly any services and where the risk of infection uh, can be very, very high. And this is why we actually locked down Winduk, the capital, in the coastal region of Erongo, where we felt that a lot of people that would come to Namibia would enter the country through this point and where also there is density of population. And I must say that these are the areas where the positive cases that we have recorded are uh, concentrated. So we do have that advantage, but I think the fact that we acted to close the borders because the infections were coming from outside helped us a great deal. And then we embarked on a vigorous campaign to create awareness amongst people to social distance, which was also very difficult, especially given the fact that the majority of especially indigenous communities are aching out a living from informal market activities. And these were the activities that were restricted. So it was quite a challenge to convince them to do that. And we had to come up with a package which uh, by the means, economic means of Namibia is a hefty one at about 8.1 billion rand as, as, as a response budget to COVID. That has shot up our debt to above now 60%, a level that we have never reached before uh, since our independence. Well, thank you so much. We all salute you for your leadership. We thank you and we honor you as our African sister for the way that you are showing the rest of the world what can be done and that we have women just like those heralded elsewhere. Thank you for being with us. And I think we might have a chance to hear from you again. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. We're going to move now to Her Excellency Pumzile Mlamba Nguka. Um, Pumzile, as I think everybody here knows, is the Executive Director of UN Women, which is an undersecretary of the UN position, one of the senior ranking members of the United Nations. She is the former Deputy President of South Africa, and she sits in a position 
where she's impacting not just women in Africa, but this is a global position. She is concerned about the advancement of women throughout the world. And so we are particularly privileged that she is South African and that she is with us today to talk about Africa. But she comes to us with a global perspective, and yet we know that she is a daughter of Africa. So Pumzile, I'd like to hand it over to you now. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Teresa, and uh, hello to everybody in the room and to my sisters on panel. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to, to see you and to hear from Namibia. So proud. Uh, well, let me just start by saying, you know, Africa has survived many difficult episodes uh, from colonialism, uh, from Ebola, apartheid. Uh, we continue to struggle to silence the guns. We continue to struggle with the impact of climate change. And we completely, we, com we continue to struggle with very resilient patriarchy. So we have overcome some struggles and we are fighting it on all fronts. So this epidemic is something we just did not need. But that as it may be, we have a perfect storm. It is a health crisis, a humanitarian crisis, an economic crisis, and all of these have dire consequences for women. As we all say, every epidemic exposes inequalities in societies, and every crisis has a gender dimension, and this crisis is no different. But also this crisis also exposes us to opportunities, existing opportunities, new opportunities. And in a time of crisis, people sometimes can make decisions that they fail to make in peace times. We always see this in war affected countries that at the end of the war, sometimes we come up with the most dynamic constitutions. So we have to look at those opportunities also in this uh, crisis. And the point I'm making is that we must not waste a good crisis by ma not making good decisions that will sustain us and address the issues that have always existed in society. In Africa, the most affected countries are South Africa, Algeria, Ghana, Nigeria, Egypt, Morocco, Cameroon, Guinea, Senegal, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and, 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 and DRC. As of the 4th of May, there were 42 countries under lockdown, and uh, 38 of them had been locked down for 28 days. It's 28 days of women locked up with their abusers, which is kind of uh, challenging uh, to, to imagine. There were there 56 million children without school meals. That risk to bring back stunting something that in Africa we're beginning to overcome because most countries are providing meals at schools. And of course, Africa also imports lots of goods and services. And one lesson out of this is the need for us to do much better intra-African trade and to utilize the African free trade area in a wiser way when we come out of this, in a gender responsive way as well, because 80% of cross-border trade is by women. So right now, 
those women's businesses are in a crisis and women tend not to be great users of technology. So another opportunities that we see as UN women is to fast track the adoption and use of technology by women who are at cross border. That would also save women from sexual favors at the borders, uh, as well as the, the stress of being away from, from family that comes with traveling uh, to and from your countries. The crisis of this pandemic risks to stall the gains that we had made, the gains that we, we made in Beijing uh, to reverse some of them. And I think to people who are in this room today, I'm asking you to help us not to lose these hard-won gains. Uh, the women who have shown us uh, what good leadership can be in times uh, of crisis in Germany, Denmark, Finland, Namibia, New Zealand, Norway, and I would include Iceland, I would include Ethiopia, which has also uh, low cases, even though it's one of the most highly populated countries in Africa, all know that you cannot play politics in a crisis. That's one thing that women are good at. They focus on what is at stake and what, what needs to be sold. They also are in a lot of scrutiny all the time, but even more in a time like this. So they will not waste the time. They will focus on what is going to give them results. And as we've seen the spike on gender-based violence, we have been challenging governments to make sure that the services directed to women who are affected by uh, violence must be declared essential services and we must prolong the provision of those services beyond the crisis because the violence against women will remain even after the crisis. As we are flattening the curve of COVID-19, we must also work hard to flatten the curve of violence against women. Women also are generally poor. They have no savings, no uh, securities, no job securities, they are predominantly in the informal sector, and that too puts them at a disadvantage. So we are looking uh, as UN Women and other stakeholders on the stimulus packages that governments are offering to make sure that they benefit women significantly. It is not automatic that uh, women will benefit, not unless we tailor-made these uh, interventions to also go to women and work with civil society who would be a very good resource for that. And of course, we address a, a social protection, which is very critical uh, for women. And of course, we have to think about building better. Building better means that we have to build an economy that is gender responsive, that is climate uh, sensitive, that addresses the inequality so that within countries, you do not have excessive inequalities. Within a company, you do not have the, the, the CEO with uh, remunerations that are so wide between them and the least paid worker. We are fighting also in this time uh, in, in the interest of women, fake news, which are also dangerous in a health crisis. So in conclusion, this is a health crisis, of course. We have to prevent in Africa the spread of the disease. 
more than anything else. That is number one. Testing, isolation, and tracing is what CDC Africa has been calling on, on all of us to do and making sure that uh, we direct our resources of our governments in the first instance to do that so that we'll not have to stress about access to PE, PPE because we would have prevented the spike of the disease. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pumzile. And, and let me ask you, um, your office has shared with us some slides. Would you mind walking us through the data that you have with respect to this pandemic? There's just one point to make about the main message from the slides. It is to show that women will not just die out of the disease. They'll die after the circumstances surrounding the disease and the response and the choices that we make. That was the same in Ebola. That was the same in Zika. And the statistics shows us how much of the decisions that we make when we are recovering and need to take into consideration how women are affected for the long term by the decisions that we make. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It's very helpful and we appreciate your remarks. We are going to move on to our next speaker, an amazing woman from Uganda. May not be a household name, but I think she will be after you hear from her today. Um, she has risen through the ranks in financial services. And as I said, all of our panelists today are global citizens. She is a, a daughter of Africa and a Ugandan, but in her current position, she's um, speaking to us from London, where she runs global merchant acquisition um, for Visa. And so, you know, in case it's not apparent, this is a, a tremendous portfolio, making, ranking her among the highest people at Visa internationally. And we are so proud of our Ugandan sister and happy that you can join us today to tell us from the private sector perspective how you have managed and what your leadership has looked like as you've had to make a lot of very important decisions with your big portfolio of lives versus livelihoods and the tough decisions that people in business are making around this pandemic. So Susan, over to you. Thank you, Teresa. And uh, good morning to everyone or good evening, uh, depending on where they are in the world. Uh, thank you as well to my panelists. It is tough to follow Her Excellency and the work that is happening in Namibia. I want to acknowledge it and say how proud I am of you. I also want to add a thank you to Punzile. You spoke as though you were in my head. Uh, yours is a call to action that we cannot ignore uh, for women around the world. Um, Teresa, it's hard to adjust context, but I will, uh, because unlike my fellow panelists, uh, mine seems to be quite an ordinary role. But I do think we play a role in finance. It's useful to set context and tell people a little bit about what Visa is, because it's not perhaps uh, something everyone's, everyone runs into every day. So first and foremost, we are a technology company. We happen to be in the business of moving money around the world. We arbitrate that money between buyers and sellers. At Visa, I lead that uh, arbitration for our seller side ecosystem. So I worry a lot about how merchants uh, get paid. I worry uh, about how their experience shows up when consumers and businesses uh, work with them. And I think a lot about the role of technology in the format of payments that consumers and businesses use around the world. Clearly, 
COVID has changed a few things. Um, I, I would love to share a little bit about the landscape as we see it um, in the context of the business we lead. Like most businesses, we're guided by a single North Star, which is customers. And for us, it's all about making sure that our customers have the tools and services that they need. Many of our customers, though, are small businesses. And while we don't touch small businesses directly, a lot of the partners through whom we do our business are served by a very, very long tail of small businesses. If you look at the facts, just picking on one country, which is the US, uh, out of about 30 million businesses in that country, 20 out of 30 are now shuttered. It's not clear if those 20 will come back. 95% of the 30 have been impacted negatively by COVID. And if you think about the why, small businesses happen to sit on the wrong side of everything that COVID suggests. The new factor with COVID is distance because it is the single best way, as Her Excellency said, to not only save the country, but to save the world. And if you think about the context of small businesses, most of them, most of them are served by local footfall. They need traffic that's close to them. They're designed to work with people in reach. They're very, very local businesses. So COVID puts them on the wrong side of every important line. Many of them don't have the capacity to serve customers remotely. Very few of them have the enough cash flow to get through weeks, let alone months, if not years, depending on the definition of how long we are in crisis and recovery. And very few of them still have the capacity to think differently about how they save their businesses and thrive. And so there are three important lessons that are coming out of COVID for us that I think I'd love to share with the team. I think the first lesson as I think about my role is transparency has been a, an important ingredient. Again, it's not unlike what we heard from Her Excellency Opunzile herself, that in crisis, it's important to tell people what you know. And one of the things we've done as I think about my teams and the customers within our teams, is to make sure that when we know things, we tell them. So telling teams what we know now, giving them certainty about what the reality that we're facing looks like, doing the same thing with customers and informing them about our sense of where the business is. And I think what's been remarkable about COVID is that that transparency, which is often difficult as organizations get larger, difficult of course, because large organizations, I would say large governments have the same problem too, but large organizations generally have more silos. What's been remarkable about COVID is the disappearance of silos, the more uncertain uh, immediacy of information and the proximity with which people even remotely are working together to solve problems. So transparency is a big tool and it's an important tool. And I would say that while there's no gender bias to transparency, I would argue that women generally do a better job of communicating what they know and are more comfortable saying when they do not know. I think the second lesson out of this is collaboration. Um, and collaboration for me is one of the largest ingredients in agility. When you think about the base I described, where many of our customers need immediate help to either move money or access money faster. 
So the agility to help governments um, with their money movement plans, the agility to ensure that as many seek to secure their staff, that we help them with tools that allow things like tips and wages to move more digitally. These may seem like very simple solutions, but they've become critical in a world where health and safety and the role of money in the physical world is changing. But agility is also showing up in different ways. Now you have businesses that are talking across to each other. One business may have capacity to do something that another doesn't have. And so there's also been a lot of matchmaking in this effort, and I really appreciate that coming out of COVID. I think the last component, which I think the, certainly uh, the two panelists before me have spoken about, is this notion of care. There is almost with certainty an elevation of humanity. We're seeing it even in business. And I was speaking to a colleague who said to me that his main objective now is to reinsert humanity in business. The one thing we've done as a company is to really get out on the front foot to ensure that the resources we have, which are a $210 million grant that we've put out there for the benefit of women in particular, because um, as Pumzila said, many small businesses are backed by female entrepreneurs. The hardest thing for those businesses is access to tools and to funding. And in an environment like this, they are at the bottom of the queue for access to public resources and even access to private sector loans. So our grant, which is a five-year grant, which is 200 for them in particular, is all about enabling them to get access to grants and funding they wouldn't ordinarily have. The other 10 million of that grant is obviously to fight this battle with everyone else who's fighting it at the front line. So the elevation of care in corporations is a big deal. Humanity at times may seem absent, but even in this crisis where for the first time in a very long time, despite the fact that they've been crisis after crisis on the continent, for the first time in a long time, every country, every business, every community is standing almost in the same shoes. And if there's one thing that brings empathy, it's an understanding of each other's issues. So that's where we are, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you for those remarks. We're now going to go on to our second Ugandan woman um, in preparing for this. Um, both Susan and Anne commented that they've never been on an international panel where there happened to be two women from Uganda. Um, Anne is the chief executive of Stanvik Uganda, and she plays a very important role not only in Stanvik Uganda. As I've said, all of our panelists are women whose impact is far beyond their national borders. Um, Anne comes to us speaking on behalf of Standard Bank throughout Africa. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And to all my fellow panelists, I salute you. It's great to have a second Ugandan, but also I want to take this opportunity to recognize Her Excellency Sarah. I had the pleasure of living and working in her beautiful country not so long ago. So I am especially proud to hear that Namibia is doing as well as, well as it did. So well done, uh, Your Excellency, we, we salute you. Uh, so uh, COVID uh, in a banking industry and at a bank, uh, an Africa-wide level has, uh, has had us asking ourselves questions that were, were not at the forefront of our mind at the start of this year. 
uh, when you think about COVID as the single largest uh, economic uh, downtown event since the Great Depression in the 1930s, it's a, it's, it's a big, big issue at the moment, as we've all seen. And what we know for sure is that COVID is going to be a turning point of humanity. And 2020 is going to be that that changes us and, and, and uh, puts us into a different perspective. The other thing that makes it very unique is the fact that there are no historical parallels on which to, to draw against COVID. There is no example you can refer to. I think the closest we have is... Uh, 1918, uh, when we had the, the Spanish flu. So those set of circumstances put together, put COVID in a realm of its own, a separate, co uh, separate compartment completely. And I've had us changing, questioning our business models and changing them and asking ourselves, what is the most important part? What do we lead with first? So the one thing that we have done, and we've been unequivocal about our approach to to the fight against COVID has been to put our people first. Uh, right from the beginning, the moment COVID started coming onto the African continent, people in Standard Bank have always been important. But with COVID, with the ascent of COVID, we have elevated that and ensured safety of our people above all else, where normal traditional wisdom would be talking about your business model, what are you doing, profitability. We said, cast that all aside. First things first, where are our people? Are they safe? Can they continue to work? And being able to take care of them, and not just the physical well-being, but also the emotional well-being. I think uh, especially on, in the African context, when we talk about things like emotional wellness or uh, uh, things to do with the uh, emotional well-being, these are subjects that are taboo in many of our societies. But as a bank, we have been very deliberate to say, can we create that time and space where our people are given a chance uh, uh, to talk about these things openly, talk about how you're feeling, and making sure that we have that space and our people have the help they need. And on the people part, the other thing that we have done uh, quite well is also to open that collaboration. Susan touched it earlier, the collaboration uh, and making sure that things are moving uh, smoothly and that we're able to continue to serve. In the absence of uh, a, a, a meeting in the lift, a coffee uh, at the coffee shop, how do we ensure that we remain connected? How do we ensure that we continue to collaborate so that we can drive forward? So that's another one that we have really, really emphasized. And the, and the last on the people part is constant, repeated, and, and clear communication. It's been one of the things we've emphasized first in the beginning to, to uh, disseminate information. Remember when we started, we, we didn't know, our people didn't know what it was, how safe they were, how, you know, all this fear was, was compounding and it was largely because of a lack of knowledge. So the, the communication has been a very, very key anchor in our strategy against uh, COVID and leading in these times to say, the more we provide information, we arm our people with facts to fight the fear and be able to respond responsibly. So that's the one part on the people that we have elevated and we will continue to do so during this, uh, even after this, this, the, the COVID period. The second part of our response plan and how we're doing this has been to go back to the core of who we are. Who are we as Standard Bank? We are the largest bank on the continent, but we are more than a bank and it's very enshrined in our purpose. Our purpose is Africa is our home. 
we drive her growth. So driving her growth means that in good times and bad times, you stand with the people, that you stand to be counted, that you provide extraordinary measures that you have not done before to be able to work within the communities and the countries where you serve and be able to ensure that the people are first safe, but also protected and continue to, to be able to, to serve the businesses. So how have we done that? We have uh, laid out, a, we were the first to, we laid out a country, a continent-wide uh, uh, credit holiday program or credit relief program across the continent to help the businesses, especially the smaller SMEs to say, how can we, we know that you're hurting, how do we stand with you during this period? How do we make sure that we're, stand, we're standing with you? And the other one we've done is that we've waived charges across the entire network from uh, digital, digital uh, channels because we know that this is one way to control. If social distancing is, uh, is the tool that we're using, how do we make sure that we're enabling that tool to come through? And, and, and by doing so, Susan will be happy that we were issuing free credit cards, free visa cards, just to make sure that the people are enabled. It's not enough that, that uh, you, 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 you gotta do over and above to be able to partner and ensuring that, that uh, you provide the tools to ensure that the people indeed remain where they are and don't come into, into concentrated places. The other part that we have done very well uh, on that is to stand with, uh, to continue to provide uh, confidence in the markets where we serve. Because if in the, as an African uh, continent-wide bank, the question we always, when the drums of war sound, you cannot run, you cannot hide. You have to be there and stand with the people so that you can fight and be able to not only survive, but continue to thrive as you go along. The other part that we've been very active on is in the thought leadership part. We have seen a lot of uh, policymakers across the entire continent working to change policy and to respond. And for us as a bank that represents a private sector, but also has a view on where the economy is as a bar at Burmata on the economy, working together with the policymakers to ensure that the policies are well thought out and are delivered in an agile fashion. I think the point, especially as women, the one thing we always, the voice at the table, being a part of the decision making, being a part of policy formulation is always gonna be a big part for us. So as we've played that role and been able to influence uh, the regulators and the rest of, of, of the policymakers to come up with the pro-market policies that not just keep people safe, but also help them to, 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 to surmount the economic uh, issues that they are sitting with at the moment. Last but not least, the work that we're doing for our vulnerable communities. Across Africa, you will see that many of our people are living from hand to mouth. Many of the communities in which we work and serve uh, have little to no savings. So we have partnered in those areas to be able to provide immediate food uh, and also to provide structures where at the low end of the pyramid, uh, we can access financing and be able to thrive. Remember this, uh, I'll give you an example for Uganda, for instance, this is the sixth week of a lockdown, six weeks. If people are leaving on a daily wage to keep them at home for six weeks, whatever savings they've had, they've eaten through, whatever capital that was for the business has all been consumed just to stay alive. Uh, so we are working through means and frameworks through which we provide capital so that when we start to open, when we start to 
to, to lift the lockdown. We are there standing with these communities to be able to provide that much needed fuel to be able to drive the economy and move forward into, into a brighter and better tomorrow. And so now, I hope that you agree that we've got some wonderful women to inspire us today. This is what we're trying to do, make sure that everybody walks away from this call charged up and ready to change the world. Um, I first had the opportunity to meet and to see Natasha um, in January at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And um, there was a panel on youth activists and Greta Thunberg, the climate change activist was on a panel and I must confess I went to hear her. I wanted to hear Greta. But what happened was that a young woman from Zambia stole the show. She is an activist in her own right. She is now a college student. She has her own foundation and her foundation works on gender issues and she's had an impact outside of Zambia having had an impact in Ghana and East Africa around women's maternal health issues, female genital mutilation. She's an amazing young woman. And so I'm going to turn it over to Natasha Mwanza. Natasha? Thank you so much for the wonderful opportunity. And it is quite an honor to be part of this panel firstly, Your Excellency, um, Madam Pumzile, I have followed you for years and I am honestly really honored to be amongst such great women. It's inspiring for me. And as a young person representing young people, as well as ladies out there, for me, this is not something I take lightly. I believe that each one of us here are here to voice out on issues that have affected our people from where we come from. And for me today, my people, the people I'm standing for are young people, are young ladies. And the COVID-19 situation, I'll just get right into it. The COVID-19 is not something that we ever expected. And it's not something that we thought would be this drastic or would have this much of an impact on us. And as young people, I think one of the greatest things that it showed us is that we are actually up to date. And what I mean by this is to an extent, the COVID-19 period for us as young people has come as a gift in disguise. For instance, if you realize or if you can remember and go back a bit before this whole situation, one of the greatest things that young people are criticized on was social media. You know, all this technology, all this internet, all this social media and everything that we're doing. And of course, it, it, it did have its points and everything. But then now, if we look at the world, social media is what has saved us. And so for me, it, doesn't, it shows me that this has exposed us to just how powerful young people are and just how much of a lead we are actually in. And as young people, to every young person that can hear me, I think we should realize now that we are actually quite capable of taking power and holding on to it. And for the females too, I think this will only be Come fair if there is gender equality in it all. And hence, I'm just going to talk on what exactly young people's roles are in ensuring that we can bridge this gap in gender equality, but not just with gender equality. I think the generational gap also has to be bridged if we actually want to have meaningful impact. And so the first thing I'm going to look at is, I think we should 
all realize by now that leadership is something that has to be taught. It's not something that all of us are born with. Of course, you can say someone is a natural born leader, but I believe that it's something that we learn from people. It's something that we're modeled from. It's something that we're groomed with. There are many women out there, powerful women. I mean, look at our panel. We are all powerful. We are not afraid to take charge and we are not afraid to take on that challenge and take the risk. But there are also way many more women out there who are afraid, who, are in, who feel inferior because that's what they've been made to believe. It's, their, it's, it's in their head and no one has sat down to tell them and say that they can actually go for it and do it. And if we let this continue with every other generation, if we let this continue with every other girl and female, if we let this continue and not step in and teach them that they're actually capable of doing it, then honestly, we'll just keep talking and having webinars and it won't take us anywhere because as it stands, we need to reshape the minds of this younger generation of females and let them know that they can take charge. And so one of the biggest roles that young people can play is actually being able to learn from you and to be mentored by us, those who are older than us and sitting us down and telling us, look, you're capable, you can do it, you can take charge and this is what we have to be taught. I'm going to go to another thing. I think we need to also understand that above all else, this generation needs the basic understanding of what exactly female empowerment is and what it looks like. Why exactly do we need women in leadership? Why exactly do we need people on power such as these who can actually take charge? What, how are these examples helping us? And that's why I'm grateful for this webinar. I'm grateful that we're able to share experiences such as this because honestly, it's inspiring. And if a young person listens to these stories, we'll be able to tell and see that it, it does work. And so in as much as we need to realize that young people may not necessarily step up if they don't know what they're stepping up for. We will not fight a war that we don't understand. We will not go into battle if we don't even understand who the enemy is. And so we need to raise awareness amongst young people. And I know I was supposed to tell you what we will need to do as young people, but I feel as though we have everything. It's, it's there. We have, we're equipped with everything we need, but then it's just there. On the other end, we need to receive a few things for us to actually understand and be part of the fight. And so genuinely, I do believe that young people are ready to step up, but we need to recognize and understand that the generation we stand with, they need to understand what gender equality is. And that's why we are all here. That's why these things are being set up. More of these, and trust me, we'll have more young people fighting and coming on board to ensure that we can have more female representation in power, in, in places of power. And then we shouldn't try to take men away from the conversation. And I do understand this is about women and this is very important. And we are not fighting men though, we are fighting patriarchy. And if we make people understand it's filled with it's filled with young boys if they too grow up with the idea of patriarchy and don't really understand how toxic it is but we keep telling them that they are the problem then we're not solving anything. You do not get rid of a tree by cutting off its roots. You have to uproot it. You have to target the root. So we have to fight patriarchy and make these men and boys realize that we need them. We take our power. So let's do our best not to leave them out of the conversation. Honestly, for me to be where I am today, I owe a lot to the way I have been natured by different men. My mentor, for instance, my life coach, my pastor, my dad, they have groomed me and invested in this young girl. There are genuinely men out there who believe in young people's potential. And if we can use them and target them to raise a younger generation that can foster this as well, then this would be perfect. So I do believe that these are some of the things that we need to engage and take 
on seriously. And on this other point, I'm just going to discuss how this situation, the whole COVID-19 experience has been a blessing in disguise and how exactly as young people, we can take advantage of it. And post um, the COVID-19 situation, how can we promote um, the empowerment of women to take up these roles, but as well as ourselves. So I'm going to talk about exposure. We should use this opportunity to expose our minds to as many different um, women out there who are doing great things as young people. I can't overemphasize it. We should use this to gain experience too. This, this lockdown has given us so much time that we have to learn to learn and share whatever we're actually gaining and impart it with others. But then we should use this to understand that our lives are our responsibility. I think now more than ever, many young people will come to realize this and there is nothing more powerful than someone realizing how much of a responsibility they have over themselves, over their country, over the nation and over the world. It was the actions of every individual that led us to where we are today. And so I believe that this is going to expose us and going to bring us out. And I'm just going to mention, this is going to probably be my last point. I'm going to talk about making us part of the conversation. I'm going to wrap up. This is my last point, but you really have to understand how important it is to make us part of the conversation. If we are going to be talking about um, people taking part in decision-making processes, young women, whether it be young men, whether it be the younger generation, we can't do that by leaving them out. We can't do that without meaningfully engaging them and having them participate and speak out and express themselves at all levels of society. So no one can tell our story better than we can and no one can express our views better than we can. If we are not made part of the conversation, then all this would be futile. There is no point in doing this if young people are not part of it. And that's why this is a great initiative. And I'm glad we have platforms like this, but we need more young people taking up such spaces because then it encourages them to know that they are actually important and that our input is necessary. And this also weighs down on the women and the females because I think generally before we even talk about females in power or female in leadership, we need to understand what power is and what leadership is. And if young people can grasp these concepts easily, then we will not be talking about how gender equality or gender inequality has been an issue for us to actually attain the leadership goals we want. And so I believe making us part of the conversation is very, very important. And these are the key things that I really believe. I, I, I consulted a few young people and this is what we came up with. And I thought it just had to be expressed because I know that each one of us have our views. Each one of us understand how important it is that women take up on. Each one of us still will express that. But there's a side of what really needs to be done on the end of young people. And this is what I believe, as well as many other young people believe, should be done for us to take up these spaces and join the fight and make gender equality a, a reality for us in power and leadership. Now, we're going to move forward to someone who really only needs a first name, um, and that is Obi. When we say Obi, everybody knows it means that Obi is Wekasili. Um, Obi comes to us as a former minister herself, the Minister of Education of Nigeria. She oversaw the Africa region of the World Bank. Obi was one of the co-founders of a very important women's initiative, and that was the Bring Back Our Girls, and she is now a policy analyst. Um, Obi, we would love to hear from you and your thoughts right now. Well, thank you so very much, Teresa, and thank you uh, to your colleagues at theafrica.com. Um, I want to be very expressive in saying that uh, the young woman, Natasha, who just spoke, could have spoken for all of the continent's women. And so I am very excited at the fact that the young are already grown and um, we should soon be giving them the opportunity to really uh, take their position properly. 
I want to say that uh, you asked me to speak for a few minutes on the matter of um, uh, structure, deliberate and structural uh, approaches to uh, dealing with the issues of gender uh, inclusion in, on our continent. And I think that the first thing is to say that when a problem is structural, you definitely need a structural solution. Uh, the issue of uneven functioning of uh, the social strata of society, whether it's in terms of the economy or it's in terms of uh, political and public uh, uh, leadership, or it's in terms of uh, leadership at community and family level, uh, are, are pretty much structural. And therefore, if we're going to make progress in dealing with this, then we need to begin to think in ways that are deliberate. We cannot be uh, just ad hoc in um, addressing the matters of uneven uh, relations that exist uh, between uh, the, the, the people in society, the two gender in society. So my first point is to say that if you looked at public leadership, since our conversation is around the topic of leadership, if you looked at public leadership, a, a proxy that is used in measuring it today globally is the number of uh, uh, women that are in parliament. Uh, the proxy that is used in uh, looking at um, the participation of women in decision-making processes, uh, the number of women, the percentage of women in a country's parliament. Uh, globally, our continent is represented by at least three countries. Um, Rwanda in the 60s uh, percent, percentile, and then um, country, two countries, South Africa and Namibia in the 40s. But when you look at the Africa region, it is 24% of Africa's parliament that women uh, uh, that, that are women or parliamentarians that are women. So what this says is that there is still a lot of journey ahead in bridging the gulf between male participation in decision making and female participation. Now, why is it important that we should address this? Another piece of data says to us that in societies, in countries where uh, more women, uh, you have a good, uh, a good representation of women in, in top decision making, the parliament, uh, that what happens is that they have lower levels of inequality. Why this is important for us as a continent is that our continent is the continent with the highest uh, percentage of inequality. And therefore, if we think of inequality from the perspective of the differential between the upper percentile and the bottom, and we know that most of the bottom is occupied by women, more than 60% of poverty on our continent is women. Uh, uh, you know, and, and with that, we say that there is a feminization of poverty on our continent. If we do know that female uh, a presence in leadership addresses inequality, then we must be deliberate in ensuring that women get to leadership. So what are the uh, possibilities for us? There are two tracks through which women do get ultimately to public leadership. There is the track of quota, those are the kinds of things, for example, that a president of Rwanda paid serious attention to. There is a track 
sake of simply the women being given the opportunity to compete at par. And so their competency and, and all the, uh, uh, all the, uh, uh, the skills that they have are, are challenged by every, the competition with the men. But what is done is that enough attention is given to the barriers that stand in the capacity of women to enter into the race in the first place. And so all of the rigidities that exist in terms of social networks, uh, the issues of finance, the issues of, um, of, of social as well as the cultural and religious barriers that stand in the way of women are removed. And when they are removed, then the women are starting not at, um, uh, in a place of disadvantage, but they are starting at an even kill with the men. And often we have seen that when that happens, when, for example, political parties allow their primaries to enable women emerge without any form of barriers put on their way, and they have to compete in order to get the votes of their communities, they connect with their community, they do get the votes. So this kind of deliberate attention to removing the barriers to, 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 the, to, to access is, is very important if you're not using quota and designating certain offices as important offices for women to occupy. The other issue around this is that uh, when, when you think of, of the, 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 the lack of evidence in, in, in connecting the dots to how the, 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 the women in leadership has improved things, even at family level, then you recognize why people think it's a, it's a soppy conversation to have about women in leadership. When we see that data tells us that in families where women play leadership role, that they actually end up with better outcomes in, in education and in health for the family. And it cascades all the way up to community and then to uh, states and to nation. When you think of it from the perspective of the business sector, you see that in companies where women get up to leadership, what has been found through research is that there is much more innovation. And because of innovation, they outcompete their peers or their, or their competitors in the marketplace. So we do have sufficient basis for us to look at post-COVID Africa as an Africa where we're going to recognize that even during the COVID, women have shown leadership in being at the front line of solving both the livelihood problems as well as the life problems. So these two problems, women have been at the front line of it. More than 50% of the people on the front line of the COVID response on the health sector side are women. In terms of the, uh, the, the, the uh, livelihood part of it, you find that governments have fiscal crisis, not sufficient resources to provide palliatives. What are we seeing? We're seeing many more women involved in that, in, in, substitu or in substituting for government, both at family and community level, in supporting uh, families to, uh, to, 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 to cushion the effect, the economic uh, effect of, of COVID. So we should get to the place where the conversation around women in leadership on our continent goes away from being something that's a sentimental topic where men think that, oh, we're doing some favor to women. No, this is not about women. Everything about gender and leadership 
is gender neutral. There's gender neutrality of leadership means that the skills that women have to bring into the process of economic development, social progress, political advancement of our society, and building the institutions that are resilient for the future to ensure a prosperous Africa makes the case and the argument for the in, in, the, the absolute engagement and involvement of women in all issues that matter for the progress of our continent. Thank you very much, Teresa. Thank you, Obi, for your very insightful and inspiring remarks. I want to share with you um, some exciting news. Women fund managers are encouraged to apply for the African Women Leadership Fund membership. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa and Standard Bank Group are calling on women fund managers across Africa to apply to join the African Women Leadership Fund Initiative, AWLF, an innovative impact fund that will provide capital and expertise to successful candidates. The AWLF initiative has been established with the aim of uplifting female-owned and managed asset management firms and providing a defined economic stimulus to achieve sustainable economic growth in Africa. The fund the first of its kind aims to raise up to 1 billion US dollars over 10 years for women fund managers, who in turn will invest in high impact businesses and projects across the continent, thus driving entrepreneurship. So the UN is now looking for fund managers. This effort is being managed by Standard Bank, but it is driven by Vera Songwe of the United Nations and if you have expertise in fund management, as we know many of the women on this call do, we've read who all of you are, and we know that there are many women investment fund managers joining us today. And if you are not one, we know that you probably know one. Please pass this information on that applicants can apply at this link or send an email to this email address. And the applications will close at the end of June. So we're really thrilled that the United Nations has chosen to use this platform to announce this very important initiative that will put more capital into the hands of women across the continent. So thank you very much. From there, we're going to move on and we're going to shortly come to some Q&A. Um, but I'm gonna put forward a question that I saw come across already. Um, and one of the questions that has been submitted by one of the attendees today is, um, is for Natasha. And the question is, Natasha, I've seen you working with Women Deliver, an NGO other than your own foundation. And Women Deliver has some words to say about the impact of what happens when women are in leadership positions. And so they've asked you as an ambassador of Women Deliver to address that. I have been a young leader, a Women Deliver Young Leader, um, 2018, 2019, and Women Deliver has been a platform that changed and transformed my mind on gender equality, and it made my activism and advocacy around these issues quite strong, and I am grateful to everything that Women Deliver had taught me, and it also enhanced my, um, my work towards women and female empowerment, and I'm just going to use um, my notes here instead, and what it actually means and what we can actually look forward to if 
women are put in places of position, if women are put in positions of power, is firstly, we're looking at women who will bring meaningful representation, and they will also ensure that they can actually be proper participation of people. This is one thing that we've seen everywhere. Whenever a woman is given a leadership role, it's like that gives room for people to be well represented, as well as women themselves. But then people are more easily able to express themselves. They create that environment. And we've seen this in many places. We've seen this in court. We've seen this in places um, of law and decision making, irrespective of the place it may be. As long as women are there, they're representative of the larger population, but they also provide platforms for many other people to express themselves and they're accommodative like that. It's just a nature that we have, honestly. And it's really beautiful to see. But then women in leadership also, um, in things like in households and in other places, this ensures that people are well taken off, care of. And it can be reflected in things like education, in things like healthcare. Women are very well able to sacrifice enough just to ensure that the people they're taking care of are okay. And so we can see this when women take over places of leadership, even at household level, you find that investments will be made towards their healthcare, investments will be made towards the families, um, education and enhancement, investment will be made towards development. It's just their nature, it just happens more. And um, it's, it's not to compare that when men take up leadership, these things don't necessarily happen. I believe that both of them do, but then it's just, there's an exhibition that women have with it that actually proves and shows that women do need this power and they need to be able to take it up. Women in leadership also has shown us how countries where women have led um, with, such, with such zeal and such enthusiasm and understanding and everything else have been able to consider and be careful before they take a risk. And this has caused and this has shown us that there's been less mistakes that have been made by women when they take up positions of power. But not only that, we've seen less inequality, we've seen less in inadequacy, we've seen that even financial distribution, resource allocation, it's done better because women have the ability to just plan and they have this ability with them to just know where things are supposed to go and that's how women in power actually is and we also see that peace agreements are able to last by 35 percent more um in 15 years at least if women are actually in charge and engaged in the creation and execution of peace agreements. And so this is something that we see everywhere else. And then we also see that usually this women being in power leads to diversity in so many ways, not in so many ways, not just in terms of gender equality or anything like that. So I do believe that women in power is something that we should fight for and we should navigate around and they should take up leadership positions because it makes the world a better place. It makes the world um, a more diverse place. It makes the world a more accommodative place and a more representative place but then also it's something that we have to make sure we do and some of the ways we can do this is by committing to gender um, to gender parity rather than leadership it's something that we just have to make a mandate and say look no matter what let's just ensure that these women will be pushed and let's do whatever we can to invest and ensure that we see this happen we also need laws and guidelines that can guide this i remember i was in sweden earlier this year and i was attending a meeting with the fia foundation and i went to the court i was not the court rather, I went to their local council and they were explaining how it's 50-50 for them. And when you look at the economy right now and how it's been run, I saw the alignment. When there is gender equality, you'll be able to see it. It reflects in everything that happens. Sweden is a wonderful place. People have access to basic services. People have access to basic healthcare services, for instance, education services, and money is not such a big issue. It, it, it feels like there's such a balance and there are not so many gaps and it's seen and reflected in the leadership. So I do believe that when women take up positions of leadership 
and when laws are put in place, there's a system that's just designed, no matter what, there has to be 50% of representation. If we make this a mandate and we make it a system and put it in place, then we'll be able to push these women to take up this responsibility responsibilities. We also just need to make this a practice. We just need to make it a culture. We need to develop it in the minds of young women and this younger generation that, look, women are capable. Women are not inferior. Women can take it up and can take charge, and we shouldn't let anything stop us. We Thanks. should also enable, um, I'm just going to mention the last one, which is just enabling and supporting women who have taken the lead and also who have organizations and movements that are running, that are promoting this lead. For instance, I run a foundation. And like you mentioned, we do a lot of gender equality in terms of sexual productive health and leadership and all those things. There are many other young people that are running organizations and foundations, many other women who've got movements. And yeah. I like that the bank is supporting this. So I think the more we support their work, the more motivating it is, and the more people realize that it is not... It is for everyone to do and take up. So I believe that support is also very important and recognizing the women who've taken up these spaces. And this is why this has been an amazing opportunity just to see all these women here and realize and recognize that they're doing the work will inspire many other people out there. And this is a good step. Thank you. Yes, can you please tell us your question? So I work for an organization where most of our women at the moment are working from home. And when we We've had our catch-up sessions. Um, we find that uh, most of the women are now struggling with managing all the roles at once. And uh, you're now your kid's Zoom assistant. You're the remote worker. You're the wife. You have to take care of your groceries and the hygiene in the home. So I don't know whether there is an organization that has found a framework or a way to manage um, mental health, because those are the things now we're looking uh, to manage. Um, mental health awareness for your women in your organizations. Um, so that post-COVID, um, after handling all this and managing all these issues, we are still, um, how do I put it, mentally sane, even after managing the whole household. Obi, would you like to address that one? Yeah, it, it may appear to be funny, but there's nothing funny about what she just asked. Um, it basically speaks to the, uh, the idea that women can multitask and therefore, you know, they can just continue to be beasts of burdens that can take on all the problems at the same time and not caving. I, I think it's essential for us to understand that there is a limit to which people can carry and therefore providing these kinds of resources, I think we should add definitely access to mental health uh, resources, counseling resources uh, for women as work begins to go home. Um, it's going to uh, increase the burden and um, it will increase, uh, it might even affect the self-esteem of women if they begin to feel that they are failing uh, in uh, properly juggling within the same context. And so definitely I agree with her. And I think that this is something, um, uh, Teresa, that you can you can actually help galvanize in, 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 within corporate work. So I, I would agree that the burden of mental health and well-being is an important one for businesses, governments, communities I like to address. There are a couple of other points that I think are important to raise as well. I do think that this crisis is changing the way we think about the future of work. And as I said earlier, I think what it has done is to give everyone about the same sensibility on the issues. So you've seen companies take strides now to 
reconfigure benefits because benefits are an important component of how men and women deal with flexibility at home. So adding more flexibility into how benefits are structured, thinking differently about how to engage the workforce, especially when there is young family or elder parents to care for at home and being much more cognizant of when there's either a single family home or a family with very young children that need to be multitask. But it's not just the future of work or flexibility or benefits. I think it's, there's a chance now for us generally to come together and rethink how we reevaluate this work at home. You think back to all the crises that our panelists have mentioned, whether it was the genocide issues that uh, faced in a number of countries or World War I and World War II that created this vacuum where men went to war and it gave an opportunity for women to start entering the workforce. That window, while it didn't necessarily change the workforce per se, that window proved beyond a doubt that women were equal in measure and capacity. So this pandemic creates that new window and the reevaluation is I think the exercise that companies, again, businesses alike with governments have to work on together. Quite honestly, I'm a big believer that until we find a way to monetize work at home, it doesn't carry weight and the same measure as work outside the home. And we've got to find a way to put those two sets of work on an equal playing field, which they are not today. Uh, yes, sir. the point I wanted to make uh, about uh, shared and paid care at home is that uh, the one who's missing must be given a task, men. Uh, first is to recognize the contribution that women make uh, because uh, women have been providing this invisible, unpaid uh, contribution for years. And I think COVID uh, gives us an opportunity to address this. You and women in our policy briefs on responding to COVID and build and rebuilding better, it's one of the issues that is on top of our agendas. And I'm glad to say that there are countries that are raising their hand to want to lead on that. Mexico is one of those, many in Latin America, Mexico, Uruguay, but also uh, there has been a, an interest uh, in Morocco uh, to address this issue significantly. So redistributing uh, uh, care and unpaid care specifically at home and engaging uh, men as, uh, as active persons in the, in the home is probably the most significant uh, change that we, we, we can see in this area. So let's try and see if there are men in this room, and I hope they are. Uh, take it away, guys. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nancy has said, how do we address issues with regards to unscientific ideologies in the combat of COVID-19 in Africa, especially in the very rural areas where our women believe there are better ways to fight the pandemic? There are still quite a number who still have no idea of what social distancing is or what the precautionary measures are. How do we get our women, every one of them, to know what the world is faced with now. Um, would she's also addressed that to Her Excellency Sarah. Would you like to address that one? Yeah, well, that is a tough one um, because we need to strike a balance between um, making advances in terms of uh, confirming um, traditional ways of addressing challenges of the kind that we are facing now, although maybe in a different form, and remaining 
um, you know, safe, you know, utilizing methods that are scientifically proven to, to, to have worked. And uh, as a country, what we have done is really to say that to the extent that whatever individual persons believe can be of assistance, uh, but does not violate the protocols that are adopted, uh, there is no prohibition of such activities. But to the extent that there are concerns that this may violate the protocols that have been adopted and that have been proven based on scientific evidence to work, then we have taken the approach to, to disallow those. Thank you very much. Well, good. That's a very good response to Nancy's question. As mentioned earlier, what we're hoping to accomplish today is to get the audience engaged and galvanized and wanting to make change. The second thing we need to do is think about what is it we're looking to do? How do we do that? What are the specific recommendations? So I'm going to start with Anne and ask you, Anne, to give us a very sharp, crisp, concise understanding of what your two recommendations are that you think should be coming out of this panel discussion. Thank you, Teresa. So uh, there are two things that for me, I think, will, make, will move the dial. The first one is uh, getting ourselves into a different frame of mind, a frame of mind that understands that the world that was before is gone. We're now in a new world. So building our mindsets, building our business models, building our organizations with an anti-fragile mentality. I don't know if you've read the book by uh, Nassim Taleb. It was uh, back in 2012 about anti-fragility. I'm not talking about robustness, which is the ability to withstand shock. I'm not talking about resilience, which is the ability to, come, to go through a shock and come back to normal. I am talking about anti-fragility, where we start to have that convex relationship with stresses, where we can move, where we can take what we have gone through and move to a better place and move to tomorrow. For us to be able to meaningfully get power and, and occupy a space on the table, we have to get that mentality. So first is a mindset. If we can't start to change our mindset, unlearn the past, learn the new, and continue to relearn, then we have a meaningful place. Otherwise, we, we risk being tokens. People looking around the table and says, oh, there's something wrong with this picture. We need a woman to complete it. No, you want to be there and you want to be able to contribute meaningfully. And the only way to do that is with the right mindset, the second part I want to talk about is, uh, is into skills, yeah? the right skills. We are very low on STEM. We are very low on IT. How do we get those that have become critical skills at this point in time? You can no longer ignore that. How do we deep ourselves into that and drive it across the levels, right? I'm pleased to see the youth on the, on the table. I'm pleased to see younger people across the entire generation. How do we do that? And last but not least, I think for me, COVID has been a chance where at a global level, it's sort of like they, they pressed a pause button globally. And it's given us a chance to stand back and think and reflect and, and sort of do some introspection to really, really understand what does it mean? What do I need to do? And, and if as women, we tap into those, our natural capabilities, there are those enduring human capabilities that we as women possess that have become very, very essential in the fight during COVID and after COVID. I talk about leading with empathy. Empathy is gonna be key. Creativity is gonna be key. 
uh, innovation is going to be key, humility. So there are those characteristics that come naturally to us as women. So if you can dig deep into that and bring it to the fore, not only will we be not only will we survive COVID, but we will work better and we will build a better tomorrow. I'm going to turn to Her Excellency Sarah. Would you like to give us your advice? Thank you. I would say that uh, let's take the lessons from COVID and the achievements that we realize as part of the response measures to beyond the COVID period. We should not um, relax after COVID. Uh, but we should take those forward to strengthen our healthcare systems to ensure that women are included, harness the uh, opportunities that come with IT, build resilience, including uh, economic resilience, actually to diversify, to, to be more self-reliant and, and also to be more prepared to deal with the emergencies. Um, especially to include women and young people, because without them, we cannot really achieve shared prosperity and sustainable development. I'm going to go now to Obi. Yes, two things. Um, the first one is to um, identify all the structural barriers that stand in the way of women actually are going into political office. Because one thing that happens is that the more women that can access a, a, a political office in the legislature, in the executive, the more the issues that affect men and um, women, uh, children, young people would come to the fore of public policy. So we have to identify those structural barriers and have a target and timeline for a global uh, a, a global joining up of various women compartmentalized uh, initiatives to come together and push towards the realization of the target of at least 30 to 35% representation of women uh, in legislative, in executive, and as it goes further. And then the second one is that even if you did that, and you don't have enough women showing interest in the political uh, uh, system, in the political environment of, of their, the political uh, uh, activities in their society, then you're in trouble. And so we need to set up uh, in a very deliberate way, a school that would work toward uh, public leadership by women. Women given very concise training uh, that enables them to emerge into place of leadership. And so whether it's understanding politics, understanding policy, understanding governance, and knowing that there is a support system that would, su that would support their entry into the political uh, context uh, and ensuring that that support system gives them the confidence to be able to move forward. Um, and then, you know, added to that particular issue of a school that is deliberate in training women to become public leaders is a fund that enables women uh, to not feel inadequate financially to take on uh, the matter of uh, leadership as the case may be, whether it's in terms of improving their skills or it's in terms of paying for things like farms that they, use, they need to pay for in order to participate in the political process. In all of it, one thing is certain, the woman who makes up her mind to attain leadership has to be, first of all, uncoupled from this mindset that leadership is male. Leadership is gender neutral, it is gender neutral, it is gender neutral. And the women need to first get that in their minds in order to make that first move that will then be supported by all others. 
Natasha, we're going to go to you. Um, thank you so much. Um, my two key recommendations really are firstly one, we should realize by now that the meaningful engagement and participation of young people and young women all around the world is very, very important. We can't have this conversation. We will not move forward if these young people are not involved, if their voices are not heard, if they are not allowed to express themselves, and if there are not enough platforms to actually hear them out and to be able to engage with them meaningfully and have them take part in decision making processes. This is very important to note because when you ask them what, you get the solution you need to the problems. When you ask them why, you get the explanation. And when you ask them how, you get them involved in the process. And that is what we need, collaboration with every stakeholder, especially young people and young women. And this is also good for the upcoming generation. It inculcates something in them. Then secondly, let's work towards investing in the health and development of young women and young people. I think we've seen it before. In as much as this might have been one of the most devastating global crises we've experienced in this generation, it's still been recurring. The biggest issues we faced before were related to health. We had teenage pregnancies, child marriages, we had unwanted pregnancies, we had an increasing rate of people getting infected with HIV, for instance, and so many other cases. This shows us how important it is for us to fight and invest in the health of young people and also in their development because it affects everything else. Right now, people are not going to school. Right now, people are not going to church or wherever they worship from. Right now, people are not socializing. It's affecting everything. It's yeah. affecting them mentally, yeah. socially, economically, physically. And so I think this is something we should invest in. The health and development of young people and young women is key in all this. So really, let's invest in us. Let's involve them. Let's engage them. Let's support their work. Work. And more so, let's keep it in mind that it is our responsibility to make post-COVID-19 the best world we've ever experienced. If we just commit to ensuring that we say that, look, young people first, as well as women in leadership, the balance is necessary. And also, just one last thing, a cry to men. This is not against you. This is not us trying to make it seem like you're inferior. This is not us trying to take over power from you. This is us taking and claiming our power. This is us asking to engage and claiming our spaces. This is us speaking truth to this power. So we do hope you collaborate. And I do hope that everyone will take it up upon themselves to commit to this particular fight and ensure that we do our best to make it a reality. I believe we can do it. Suzanne, I'm coming to you now. I want to make sure Pumzila gets the last word. Um, so I'll say two very brief things. The first one is we are at the most amazing intersection of humanity and innovation. And for those who are purpose-driven, this is our time. A lot of women, young people, men love purpose. So those who are on the edge and have been looking for a way to get in, this is the window. The second one is I acknowledge the structural issues. To be purpose-driven, you have to have some skill. Digital, critical, the ability to influence, communicate, agility, leadership. Use the window, lead. We know as business and countries and governments, we have to help, but this is the window. Get out there, get equipped, and get in the war. Excellent. Thank you so much, Suzanne. And like you said, Suzanne, I wanted to give Pumzile the last word. Pumzile? Thank you so much uh, for these uh, thought-provoking uh, deliberations of today. Uh, thank you, Teresa, for uh, giving us this, this platform and, and opportunity. My two um, uh, recommendations is first, that uh, uh, one of the biggest gains after Beijing was girls' education. And whenever we look back at what we achieved in the 25 years, 
since Beijing, girls' education and maternal health are two things where we moved the needle. We both are at risk uh, because with the crumbling of the uh, health system and uh, it being overburdened, mothers are giving birth in places that are not safe and we're increasingly seeing more mothers giving birth uh, in formal institutions. And girls' education, when there's been a crisis like this and children have been out of school for a long time, as Natasha and others said, girls don't go, many girls don't go back to school. They are forced into marriage, uh, they are trafficked, and we're seeing now the increase of trafficking. Some of our countries are working in that area. So I am asking that we preserve that game. We cannot have another lost generation of children. We cannot have another a spike of child marriage, something that we've been fighting for the last 25 years. On our part as UN Women, we are pushing parliaments to continue with passing the laws uh, that makes the age of marriage higher so that we don't lose that momentum. But at the same time, we need practical interventions. And I'm asking the practical intervention on your part to accelerate digit digitalization so that we can reach the children at home through online learning, because if they are learning and doing something, it's going to be a, more attractive for them to continue with their education than to give up. HIV infections are higher when children are idle, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm asking for you to collaborate. Governments cannot do this by themselves. I know that for sure. We need a collaboration with private sector. We need the telcos of the continent to make this one of their biggest contribution to, the gener to this generation, keep the girls at school, and all of us, let's see how we can cut, count the heads of the girls who were at school before COVID and the girls who go back to school after COVID. We must account for every child. My second recommendation is the appreciation of health workers as essential work. Uh, let us look at their conditions of service. Let us also give some profile to this very important profession and science. Push our children into these life-saving professions because now I think many children have just been in awe seeing those people wearing white overalls. If it has not helped to make them think about science, uh, I, I'm sure nothing else will do it as dramatic as this has been. But let us really pay attention to the working conditions of health workers as a euphemism for all women. Women's leadership, they are doing their work. They are the majority of the health workers who are keeping us alive everywhere in the world, but they're not in the leadership of the health sector. I mean, it was so funny to me here in South Africa where the trade unionism is so advanced. The spokesperson for nurses is a man. I'm like, how did that happen? The spokesperson for the union that organizes health workers is a man. The global CEO of the nurses organization is a man. And I just said, yeah, this is trouble. So I'm pushing that out of this. Let us profile women's leadership, use the health workers, but also address it across the board. As, as Natasha was saying, and, 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 and some of you, 50% is what we need. I mean, it's, it can, we cannot now go to 30%, etc. We need 50%. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, I just want to, uh, again, ask for you to pay attention to the economic stimulus 
to make sure that they are addressing women. If you are contributing, track that money, purpose it to address women, make it your responsibility to ask, is your company having women at the right place? Are you paying equal pay? Are you making sure that women have got all of the privileges that all other workers in your company have? Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Pumzile, for those words. Well, I'm going to just pick up where Pumzile left off, although that's a hard job to do. The point that she made last, that women are at the forefront as healthcare workers. Women are at the front of this war, which is different from other wars. Suzanne made some reference to that, but this is a very different situation. Women are caregivers, women are in the health professions, Women are making the difference at home with respect to hygiene and managing all the matters. So in this particular case, women are gonna walk out of this crisis having been the ones who won or lost the war. We see it in our leadership, which makes us so happy to be able to celebrate our sister Sarah here today. And we see it in the individuals, all of us on this call, all of the women who are on this phone, we all know how our lives have changed, both professionally and personally, as a result of this crisis. So what are we looking to do? I remind you of where we started. We started with a view that we want this to be Africa's Beijing moment. What do we need to make that happen? A dark time for women. We have that. Tick that box. Inspiration. If these women didn't inspire you, no one will. This has been a tremendously inspiring conversation for me. Tick that box. Specific recommendations. I'll remind you of what they are. Anne says that we must relearn our mindset into an anti-fragility mode, and we must focus on skills, STEM, and IT. Sarah tells us that we must learn from our achievements, first of all. And number two, we must not relax and we must remain vigilant. Obi tells us we must focus on structural barriers for political office and have specific targets to achieve them. And secondly, help those who have an interest in achieving a political role and think about a school specifically that will help to um, train people. Natasha tells us we must remember to have meaningful engagement of young people. We must think about the importance of health and we must involve men. Susan tells us that we must um, use the purpose, make this a purposeful window and make good use of it. And she also focuses on the importance of skills. From Pumzile, we hear again, girls education, absolutely critical, especially in the digital space. She reminds us to remember the health workers. And she reminds us that in economic stimulus, stimulus packages and in the private sector, we need to make sure that women have their fair share. I'd like to quote Chimamanda Adichie, who um, we all know has written about feminism. And she says that her own definition of a feminist is a man or a woman who says, yes, there is a gender problem as it is today. But all of us, women and men, must fix it. We must do better. All of us, women and men, must do better. We must remember that what's good for women is good for Africa. And what's good for Africa is good for women. Lastly, we know that power is not a material possession 
that can be given. Power is never given, it is only taken. So men and women, let's go take that power. Thank you very much. Um, this is the conclusion of the first part in our series. And we are very happy to tell you that we have decided to extend this series. And so we invite you to join us again next week um, next week, we are going to be looking at what are the Africa's real numbers behind COVID-19. We know the numbers are low. What does that really mean? And what are the right lockdown exit strategies given our understanding of those numbers? We will have Dr. Moweti of the World Health Organization, Chikwe Ikuyazu from the um, Nigerian Center for Disease Control, David Kay, who is a professor at the University of California and the United Nations, who's spoke, uh, written extensively about freedom of information, which is an important factor here. We have a couple of other panelists that we are not able to confirm for you on this call, so keep checking the website and we will be in touch with you by email. On behalf of Africa.com, I'd like to thank all of our panelists. I'd like to thank the audience. And let's go forward and make this Africa's Beijing moment. Thank you.